Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where we collide. Uh, ow! <laughs> My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic uh, of no renown. And uh, I don't have a cute nickname either, but with me as always is the scintillating, intelligent, and always charming... William, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I'm also a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs, and I renown the hell out of you. Oh, well, that's sweet of you to say. I, I nouned you, <laughs> and then I did it again. You're, you nouned me twice. You've been renowned. I'm a proper noun. Yeah. <laughs> I love Whitney very much. Thank you so much for being my co-host for all these years, dude. Well, thank you. It's it, it As we mentioned, uh, we kind of missed our 10th anniversary. <laughs> We, we just forgot about it. Yeah, we, we, we had been... Po- we were so po- busy making podcasts. We were podcasting so hard that we forgot that we had been podcasting for 10 bloody years. So, happy anniversary a few months after the fact. Yeah, I got you. I got you this sandwich. Oh, thank you. It's a 10th anniversary sandwich. There you go. <laughs> the 10th anniversary is the sandwich I, anniversary. I, I made this sandwich 10 years ago, and I've been saving it for this exact moment. <laughs> I've been hiding it behind the, the radiator. This week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing the new releases Bad Trip, Violation, The Mole Agent, and the father we're also on the critically acclaimed streaming club where while the pandemic is still going on while theaters are still not at full capacity yet we're spending a lot of our time trying to make sure while we're watching movies on streaming we're also watching old movies that are available on streaming too this week as chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh we are reviewing carl theodore dreyer's 1930s supernatural masterpiece vampire uh, which is mm. a very, 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 very important and well-respected art house horror movie. It, it, consider it the A twenty-four film of its of its day, <laughs> which is yeah. quite accurate, actually. And you set it opposite uh, Todd Browning's Dracula, which is yeah. uh, much more. I mean that that it's more film theatrical. is that, that film is really stagey and theatrical, but it, it was the more uh, the Hollywood. more the pot boiler, the Hollywood film uh, of its day, whereas Vampire. Was, yeah, the art, the art house movie. So we're going to have a lot of fun talking about that. Uh, but first, got to get through all these new movies. Oh, pish, yeah. all, these n- ew, all these new movies. Yeah, everything <laughs> new is meh. <laughs> everything new is, well, it's still new, isn't it? Uh, Whitney Whitney <laughs> took me by a horrible surprise. Uh, I, I had only got to see one new movie this week, and I thought he'd only gotten to see two. So I thought, oh, it's pretty good. It's not going to be like a totally Whitney-loaded <laughs> episode. And then he just decided off the top of his head today <laughs> to just watch two more movies just to make me look like crap. Oh, it wasn't just to make you look like crap. Not just. <laughs> well. It was one of the motivators. No, it was just because they're, they're, the Oscar nominees were released. We haven't commented on them because um, they, they kind of came and went without a whole lot, like not as much buzz this year as they usually get. It's a weird situation. The everything release got, schedule is so weird. Everything uh, got pushed back. There was a lot going on at the same time. They didn't hmm. like clear the Oscars schedule the way that they often did. So that people, I think we came out like around the same time that like the Justice League came out and yeah, everyone was kind yeah. of just talking about that instead. And, um, and I, weirdly enough, I actually haven't seen quite a few of the nominees this year, which is weird for me. Usually I've seen most, uh, mm-hmm. and I still have some catching up to do and I haven't had the opportunity because I've been focusing on making all these podcasts, uh, but also the soap business over at Etsy. We have Salt Cat Soap. We're, we're making soaps. We're getting ready for our big April mm-hmm. soap debuts at the store, um, and uh, got a lot of other got, got personal shit going on yeah, as well. Yeah. It's just been really, really rough. And catching up on an additional like eight movies is tricky, you mm-hmm. know. 
Um, next week, uh, however, is going to be the official release date of the Oscar shorts. Yes. So that's like 15 nominees right there that we can catch up on. And we, plan we, to we usually, that. usually talk about all of those. It's exciting. Uh, and I, also, uh, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't seen one of the best picture nominees. And as it turns out, one of the best picture nominees was released on streaming this week. So I got to see the father. May we start with that? We, you know what? I guess we might as well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah let's it's, do it. It's nominated for six Academy Awards, uh, best picture and best actor included. Also, uh, editing, supporting actress for Olivia Coleman, um, adapted screenplay. Mm. Um, Flor- this is directed by Florian Zeller, uh, who I believe wrote the play that it was based on, mm. which is called uh, La Pere. And uh, it stars Anthony Hopkins as a man who is residing in his flat. His daughter, played by Olivia Coleman, comes over and they get into a bit of a row. Evidently, he like just fired... Uh, somebody who is working for him in the apartment. And it's not clear at first in what capacity she was working for him, but we learn pretty quickly that she was a caregiver Mm. and he is uh, already suffering the effects of Alzheimer's and he's forgetting a lot. And the the way this film progresses is uh, someone will leave and another actor will enter playing the same role. And uh, the Anthony Hopkins character who plays, he plays a character named Anthony will be a little bit confused. And we're also uh, like a, a kept a little bit off balance as, as audience members as to all of these shifting scenarios and, uh, and conversations. They'll have a conversation. And then three minutes later, the conversation will, he'll bring up something that they mentioned earlier and they can't remember that he had said that. And it turns out we learn pretty quickly that time has passed. They pass from room to room, but it turns out they're going from one apartment to another apartment. And it starts to feel like it's a, it's a story of dementia and it's about how his memory isn't allowing him to string together events of, of his own life in any kind of chronological way. Things are getting kind of swallowed up. Uh, but it starts to, it plays like a thriller. I was reminded a lot of, uh, s- certain scenes in, um, I'm thinking of ending things mm. where, you know, a- some characters seem to like age all of a sudden, like they come downstairs and they're one age and then there's a hard edit and they're suddenly a completely different age. And that film was dealing with a lot more kind of surrealism and artistic abstractions. This one is dealing very much with the state of memory and what it felt like for this character to experience dementia from his perspective. Right. This is a topic mm. we've actually seen a lot in mm. uh, the uh, Oscar-nominated shorts so, in the last 10 years or yeah, so. I think last year the animated shorts had two films about dementia. There were like there were two yeah. of those. We had a couple of live-action ones over the years mm. that were all about, about literally from the perspective of what it would be like to mm. have dementia and tell a story from that angle. Um, how does it work as a feature? Mm. It it works really well. It's very terse. Uh, it and you know, of course, it ends uh, in, in on a very sort of sad, melancholy sort of note. Uh, but it's really fascinating because it's not wallowing in the pain of the scenario. Mm. Um, I you know because you as you mentioned, we see this topic covered in a lot of films, especially in a lot of Academy Award nominated films. Mm. Uh, and you know, it's the topic of something like, um, still, still Alice, Alice yeah. was, was the most recent big Oscar contender from recent memory. Yeah. And, uh, those films are, you could argue that those films are kind of about suffering. It's really trying to put the audience deliberately through the ringer, showing you that this is really, sympathy, really, really yeah. hard and get you to just to rip your own heart out and ball and ball. And the, 
Anthony, the Anthony Hopkins character, is actually lively. He has things he's interested in. He just can't put things together in quite the same way. And he seems really kind of confused a lot of the time. And it's really good at actually evoking a, a kind of relatable sympathy rather than this movie version of it. I think mm. Anthony Hopkins gives a really good performance uh, in communicating who this guy is, but also how he's starting to slip more and more into this cloud of confusion. Yeah. This is, this is the third mm. film version of this play within the last 10 years. Uh, well, that's, it, that's, that's, it's, that's very unusual, mm. especially for a relatively recent play. Like it's not like yeah. the third Romeo and Juliet we've had mm. because it's like classic. Cause it's kind of a, re- a it's a recent play from what I understand. Yeah, well, again, up, Florian Zeller wrote it. The, so it's the, within the, the last generation. The date of the play. Uh, there yeah. was a TV movie in 2014. Uh, mm. and then there was a feature film in 2015 that was actually called Florida and starred Jean Rochefort, mm. uh, okay. or Rochefort, I believe it's pronounced, but, um, and um, yeah, so this is the this is the American version, and um, I did not see it. Well, it, it's the British version. Well, oh, yeah, um, I was, I apo- yeah. you know what? That, that's Engl- me Eng- being a jerk. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah. Yes, this is the British version. Br- the British version, Eng- English yes. language version. English um, language version. Yes. Uh, and I, I have to check. Myself. I, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, I haven't seen any of the other uh, renditions of this, uh, and this one does feel like a play. And I know that can be a sticking point for some critics and some audiences. This film feels like a play. It's not a film's job to not feel like a play. I think feeling like a play is a perfectly legit, legitimate way to film a piece of cinema. I think we got to get over this very rigid idea of what good cinema is. I feel like yeah. there's a lot of people who think that if a film has like lulls. It's uh, inherently bad if no. it tells instead of showing. Sometimes it's inherently bad if well, it's campy. Yeah. It's inherently bad. Like there's a very weirdly narrow framework. Of sometimes we we place on movies. In I terms think of what to, be good, and I think yeah. I think you're right. I think not yeah. feeling like a play is something that I yeah. I used to think was a problem. It's not. No, it's not. And and sometimes it's nice if it does feel like a play, as if mm. things are sort of happening a little bit more immediately right in front of you in one setting. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Uh, we you know, we, if somebody it, describe somebody comes in from off stage and describes something that happened, we don't necessarily need to see that. Sometimes yeah. the story is just as evocative as well, because that's what a dramatization. Like You're just yeah. having a long conversation with people. Yeah, yeah. You know, think think of every movie that feels stagey. Just imagine you're watching a podcast <laughs> getting filmed. That's it. It's just me and Whitney. You know, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's just me and Whitney being drunk, <laughs> angry about our son. <laughs> Don't talk about our son, William. Right. Uh, Sorry. Sorry, Luca. <laughs> there, Luca. Luca's happily asleep on the couch. Yeah. Uh, He's not very nocturnal. It's hilarious. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's... It's effective. It's incredibly dramatic. And I'm kind of surprised this is one of the ones that's getting like all the Oscar attention. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, I admit that because the way the uh, the Oscar cycle has functioned this year because of the pandemic is way different from what we're used to. Often there'll be like uh, maybe a big year end push for some of these movies. So we'll, there'll be a big, bigger part of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they'll they'll have come out earlier in the year and there'll be a lot of buzz throughout the year as to whether yeah, or not film this festivals will get. Yeah. And people are saying like, oh, is this the movie that's finally going to get still else? Is this the movie yeah. that's finally going to get Julianne Moore her Oscar? That right, kind of right. thing. And that sort of carries us through. And then sometimes 
Not always, hmm. but sometimes these movies that have these huge hype machines and win Academy Awards, one year later, you've forgotten all about them. Yeah. Because they may have been good, but they weren't necessarily remarkable hmm. or important. And so you just sort of go, huh. Yeah, the the father is very good, but okay. it, it wasn't so it wasn't so grand that it would it would have shaken up my you know best of the year list. Okay, that's uh, a fair point. It's and and I, I feel like um, to to expand the conversation a little bit, I feel like that's the case with a lot of of Oscar buzz films or even Oscar nominees. Yeah, where they they win or they're nominated and we only talk about them because they're nominated. Yeah. And we I'm feel not, like we're yeah. obligated to talk about yeah. them. And then, then, then some, we for, often forget or mm. neglect to talk about other interesting things. Yeah, the, I, the, I, the phenomenon of extremely loud and incredibly close looms large yeah. uh, in, in our minds for how little it looms large in our minds. And I think we've actually noticed this a lot in terms of how blockbusters take up all the air in the room mm. throughout the year when every week multiple blockbusters are coming out or multiple attempts at blockbusters yeah, with giant, big budgets big budget and big promotional films, yeah, yeah. campaigns. And uh, there's not like everyone's just only talking about the big stuff. Mm. Like the last year or so we've had like one or two major releases a month. And th- I feel like that's a good sweet spot. <laughs> like, just like I can listen. Just I don't one, know if one I can a handle month. one a month is fine. Like, yeah. like we've got we've got Kong versus Godzilla is like at very end of March. At the beginning of March, we had Justice League. That's enough, I think. I mean, <laughs> they're both from Warner Brothers, so mm. we should spread that around. But like, I feel like that's a good amount of like blockbuster conversation, and then there is still room to talk about other stuff. I'll 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 say this because of of the closure of theaters and because of the delay of all of these blockbusters, there was as a result this kind of exciting tone that started to enter into the film conversation mm-hmm. over little tiny movies. Remember when people were talking about the half of it? Yeah, or The Vast of Night. Oh gosh, The Vast of Night is so darn good. It's a really good movie. <laughs> Even a movie like Palm Springs, which I feel like probably would have gotten a theatrical release, mm. probably would have done okay, but then the conversation would have stopped about it after opening weekend. Mm. People kept talking about that for like the better part of a month because yeah, it was like, really good and there, wouldn't, there I mean, wasn't like a big superhero mm. thing taking up all the oxygen. Yeah. It could thrive. So, uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of these uh, smaller films are getting a chance to move around. And something yeah. like The Father is now a, one of the Oscar frontrunners. Yeah. Uh, good. And, and it's quite good. a good film. And it has a lot of really good performances. And it's just impeccably staged. Mm. Um, but, well, uh, but yeah, it it's a kind of a peculiar beast in that it is about a serious topic. But it feels a little bit more like it's a, of a different genre. Yeah. Well, uh, you saw another Academy Award nominee, so why don't we just mm. make that the segue. Tell me about The Mole Agent, which I assume mm. is about uh, some sort of talent agent for a mole. Uh, you, you hit the nail on the head from the makers of Romeo and Juliet, sealed with a kiss. No, this is actually a, a documentary film. Uh, this is up for... Uh, also multiple Academy Awards. It's up for an Academy Award. The, yeah. And it's just um, best documentary feature. And this is about uh, a man in his 80s who is hired uh, to infiltrate a nursing home to see if, uh, A, to find somebody who's living there, and B, to 
find out if they are being mistreated. Oh. So uh, elder abuse is okay. is a problem in a lot of nursing homes. Yeah. There have been multiple exposés about it, and it and it persists, and it is a problem. Uh, the idea that the uh, some of the people who work in nursing homes aren't uh, vetted. Sometimes they are, uh, but they see the the denizens as just sort of things to take care of rather than people who yeah. need care, and they just sort of abuse them or shout at them or sometimes just physically throttle them. And it, it's it's a big problem. So yeah, huge. the person who's hired this old man is concerned that something is going on at this nursing home. Um, this nursing home he's gone into, it's mostly women. Uh, I, and I assume that's because men die earlier. Uh, Typically, w- w- that, women is, that on, is... On, yeah, yeah. On, on average, women tend to live longer than men. So uh, he goes into this uh, this nursing home. It's populated most, mostly by women. He is immediately a celebrity. And uh, the documentary crew is there under subterfuge. They say they're just sort of making a documentary about the nursing home in general. But that gives them an excuse to film this guy and sort of how he inter- interacts with uh, the people who live there. It takes him... Now, the, the way he's reporting back to sort of this shadowy, almost like cop-like agency who constantly wants reports from, like a daily reports from him, is from the cell, from a cell phone, but he's kind of a befuddled old guy in a charming sort of way. He can't really figure out how to use the phone, and he starts giving reports like, well, we danced today. It's actually really nice. Sat around... That, you know, we, we had juice at dinner. I talked to this really nice old lady and, you know, he's not giving like any kind of pertinent information, trying to blow the lid off of this place. Mm. And as time passes, we get to see what life, just to see what life is like in this nursing home. What, you know, how it, it doesn't really focus on the staff or any kind of subterfuge. After a while, it's just here are the people who live here. Their families don't visit. They can't get around very well. So a lot of their days are spent just sort of sitting and talking or not talking. They're bored and they're lonely. And that it, the focus of the film begins to shift toward that. Hmm. How the people uh, that live in nursing homes are bored and lonely. And how there can be cute, utterly adorable moments of human connection and even romance in these nursing homes and uh, the ultimate coda of the film is not what you would expect because it just so dramatically shifts focus. It starts out being this kind of spy story and it kind of calms down and realizes that's not really what's important here. Hmm. Uh, It's really sweet. Oh, and I thought it was going to get much uh, darker when you tell me the premise. It's it's uh, nice to know that it's sweet. uh, Yeah. If, um, and if you have uh, a parent or a relative who lives in a home, visit them more often. Yes. <laughs> Very true. Mm. However often you b- visit them, visit them more often. They want to see you. Yeah. Um, okay. Mm. Uh, what do you want to, where do you want to mm. go to now? We got two more uh, new features and they couldn't mm. be more. Well, they're very different films. Okay. Which one do you want to do? Uh, well, Violation is was kind of a bitter pill to swallow, so let's just dive right in. Okay. Um, Violation is a Canadian thriller that's on Shudder now. Uh, it was a, released on Shudder, and it had something I'd never seen on Shudder. It had a disclaimer at the beginning because it had for extreme sex and gore images. 
Yeah. Like, this is Shudder. Shudder is... Shudder <laughs> this is the horror network. Shudder like, has some really shocking and violent motion pictures and, mm. and very intensely physical and sexual motion pictures. Uh, so, yeah, that would be that would be odd. Mm. Um, but I guess that should... Might as well. I guess we're going to have to talk about some of that. So, mm. uh, you know, trigger warning. Yeah. Uh, to everybody, if you want to skip ahead, we mm. won't blame you. Um, so, uh, without going into too much... Mm. Uncomfortable detail, or, or, um, or any uncomfortable detail, if you can avoid it. What, what are we talking about? Well, uh, it's, and th- this is another one that's told like a, in a little bit of a jumbled um, chronological order. And there's a yeah. lot of uh, shots in this movie that are extreme, extreme close-ups, like a, a, a stretch of someone's skin or yeah. the surface of water. And you're not really sure what you're looking at for a long time, and we hear a lot of ambient sound. So it's really kind of dread, dreadful, and, and atmospheric. And it's about a couple who are traveling to a cabin in the woods. Yeah. Uh, and Why things do we are... even have those anymore? <laughs> because if you've ever been to one, they're actually quite nice. I guess it's actually, I know. It's actually a home in the woods by the lake, and they're going there for uh, to visit family. I just want to know, um, what was, everyone just think to yourself in your head, what was the last time you saw a movie where people went to a cabin in the woods and something bad didn't happen? Like, not like, mm. oh, a relationship fell apart. Like, no, but like something like horrifying. Like it does, it's not as often as you'd think. It's usually the setup of a horror movie. I think it's. Kind of <laughs> I'm, I'm going to write a film called "This Cabin Is Great," and it's about. <laughs> that should be about the next a, radio play. <laughs> this cabin is great, and they go to a cabin in the woods, and everything is wonderful. They find money, and they keep it, <laughs> and no criminals are after them. <laughs> I seriously want to read that. Well, I want to listen a, to that radio play. You need to make that radio play. And there's a bad guy stalking them in the woods and says, oh, oh, thank goodness. I've been lost in the woods. I'm an agent and I will produce anybody, <laughs> anybody's movie. Oh, you're a screenwriter. Okay. Well, I'll make your dream come true. Thank you for helping me. And everybody's just really nice to each other. I'm dead serious. I really want to listen to that radio play. Let's make that radio play. This cabin is great. This cabin is great. The radio play. Um, violation. <laughs> So there, uh, a married couple is heading out to uh, this this home uh, in a remote place. Things are really chilly between them, mm. and uh, the young woman. Let me look up the actress's name. Um, Madeline Sims Frewer, who's also the co-director. Uh, she starts to have very candid conversations with her sister, who's played by Anna McGuire. Uh, about how their relationship isn't quite so good and also is trying to really, really stress the fact that her sister's marriage to her American husband is actually really not great and you should keep an eye out for this guy. I don't trust your husband. Mm. Which, of course, keeps things even chillier between them and this brings up all kinds of things from their childhood and their past about how they've always kind of resented each other and maybe they don't have a really great relationship. And through the course of all of these flashbacks and flash forwards, we learn uh, that uh, the main character had actually been, like like the title says, had been sexually assaulted uh, by the husband. Okay. And and this is all very and it's uh, sort of the the way it plays out, the way the relationships play out, how we kind of see something get revealed, and then we see flashbacks to things we hadn't seen before kind of piecing it all together. Uh, The fractured narrative is a good way to reveal information. I'm not sure if it's necessarily thematically uh, necessary. Sometimes it's literally just there because if we put things in order, it wouldn't be as... as, Yeah, like like just sort of following that story chronologically. Like if we knew what had happened, then yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't play out in quite the same way. 
I think there's a, a skillful way to withhold information, and this film does it pretty well. And mm. uh, I was a... <laughs> I have to admit, I'm a, a bit of a sucker for those kinds of story, the storytelling tropes where we only see like one kind of abstract image and are given information through uh, like half heard whispers and little kinds of bits of information that are dropped throughout. Mm. Uh, it's not quite like a Claire Denis film, which are, are deliberately uh, oblique, right. but uh, it's it's at least fun to sort of you feel you feel smart for piecing it together, even though the film is just sort of laying it out for you eventually. Sure. Uh, it then erupts into some pretty extreme acts of violence that are uh, really kind of difficult to watch. A lot of uh, a lot of blood, a lot of human meat, uh, and a lot of just harrowing emotional experiences about how this has just a lot of what's going on in this movie has just wrecked everybody, both physically and emotionally, and how things may not be good ever anymore. Mm. Uh, it, is that it, good? Well, uh, it depends. Uh, it depends on what your cup of tea is. Uh, if if you like these kinds of extreme uh, emotional, these har- harrowing emotional journeys, then yeah, it's great. Uh, okay. I, I like being sort of dragged through the drags occasionally, and yeah, going to the end of this really extreme uh, vengeance story was actually a, a, a bit of a pleasure for me. Yeah. There's a whole genre yeah. uh, to that effect. And mm. I guess that makes sense for why Shudder would want to give people a heads up mm. and say, because there's people who just have no interest in that genre yeah. and with good cause, it's perfectly reasonable, yeah. but there have been some good films made in that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. In, in fact, one that's up for multiple Oscars, Promising Young Woman you is, is a film well, about uh, revenge and, and sexual assault. One, uh, could also, but it's, one could argue that's maybe a bit more about grief than it is about revenge well, per it's, se, but... Well, what it is, is it, it looks at sort of the system that coddles attackers and yeah. feels a, a great deal of righteous indignation over it. Yeah. And that's what makes that film so amazing. Violation doesn't have that righteous indignation. It has hate, and it has pain, and just feel those. Honest about it? it, it's honest about it, but okay. it just sort of dwells in that space. It doesn't bother to move on. It doesn't bother to think uh, think through anything. Uh, like promising young woman has actually a lot more sophisticated things to say about yeah. a broader a broader system. Uh, I guess I'm trying to think. This of a is situation just about in which I'm, uh, I'm, uh, besides being a film uh, critic. When I'm going to want to sit down with a bowl of popcorn and watch Violation. I, I, I honestly am not sure. I'm going to be like, hey, yeah. honey, let's, let's, let's watch a movie tonight. What do you want to watch? Like, I can't imagine that coming up. But again, it's it's a matter of taste, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's definitely not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, thankfully, uh, and I think this is because it, it's directed by women, it doesn't sensationalize the assault, okay. uh, which is... Uh, sort of the, the worst trapping of this genre oh, with, yeah. with things like I spit on your grave where uh, they, they really try to make uh, the assault seem seem really kind of lurid back in the well, grindhouse days. Like, that's like and, half the movie. Yeah. The movie. It's, yeah. it's repugnant. Yeah. And, and yeah. yeah, like the, the audience is, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what kind of thrill the audience is supposed, supposed to be getting. And if it is what I think it is, then that's sick. Uh, but a lot of films recently uh, about that are of this genre uh, that I've seen that I've liked have been directed by women. Uh, another one is Revenge, yeah. which is also on Shudder, and that uh, that's a, just a, a violent revenge thriller. That, there's a lot more, a lot more action in a movie like that. Yeah, this one just sort of feels the pain and the hate and stays there and lets you feel it too. Okay. And if you want to feel pain and hate, 
then good golly, this is the film for you. Well, again, art gives us a space in which to do exactly. that. So that there's, is in, in, at there, least inherently not a bad there, there's, thing. There's, there's, fun, thing. there's definitely a function for that. And, okay. Uh, and then lastly, there's a road trip movie about two stupid guys who, <laughs> who, who break things. There sure is. Yeah, it's called Bad Trip. Um, I, I'm more mixed on this one than you. Um, right. But so it's called Bad Trip. Uh, it stars Eric Andre and uh, Lil Rel Howery and uh, Tiffany Haddish. And uh, it's one of those movies that is partially scripted because there is a narrative. There is, you know, a character mm. arc and such. Um but it's all based around uh, sort of uh, pranks on real people. So Borat was more about like sort of mortifying people with social situations. This is more mm. in the like bad grandpa. We're going to do something super crazy and see how people respond in real yeah. time. Uh, so the plot of the movie is Eric Andre from uh, the Eric Andre show. He's a brilliant comedian. Mm. Um, he has uh, the, the girl he had a crush on in high school has suddenly shown up after 10 years and mm. he's taken this opportunity to finally do something about it. And, uh, but it turns out she, she lives in New York now and she's not staying. Mm. So she does say, however, Hey, if you're ever in New York, come, come see me sometime. And he takes this as she's into me, which you can immediately tell from the beginning of the movie that is not the case. And maybe this road trip isn't going to be super awesome, but he ends up, uh, uh, teaming up with his best friend played by Lil Rel. Uh, and, uh, they steal Lil Rel's sister's car because she's in jail. <laughs> uh, she's played by Tiffany Haddish and she is a very violent person. And when she finds out that they've stolen her car, she's like, she's out of jail and she's like mm -hmm. trying to find them across the country. And they get on one series of, uh, one wild situation after another in which they find a way to mortify or disgust mm -hmm. or, uh, potentially throw into blind panic, uh, people wherever they go. Well, um, and the setup is something I've seen in just bad scripted comedies. And it's, it's, a lot of this, and all of the scripted portions do feel really contrived. And I think... They feel exactly like Dumber Dumber, actually. Like, yeah. exactly. Like, the exception of, like, the kidnapping plot at mm. the end. The whole, I'm going to go on a road trip to meet this girl, and I'm going to drag my best friend along, and at some point we're going to ha be on the outs because I value my potential relationship with this woman more than I do with this guy, and there's going to be a big declaration of friendship, and the, it's going to be really stupid, mm -hmm. and the other guy's going to be like, yeah, but I forgive you anyway, let's do it, but then they get there, and they forget her name, so they have to look up and see if her name is Mary Samsonite or not, <laughs> and it's just structurally, it's very, yeah, very, I'm very dumb and dumber. And uh, Dumb and Dumber, numerous other comedies whose titles I just can't remember right now. Yeah, uh, and, and I think uh, I think Eric Andre, who co-wrote the screenplay, uh, was kind of wise in staging the outrageous segments in the real world with real people and not not actors, because at least that's a new angle, and that's a yeah. good way to look at these sort of embarrassing scenes where. Uh, where they have a little bit more comic immediacy yeah. rather than just being yet another stupid contrivance where guys embarrass themselves. Well, I feel like I, there's one part in this movie that mm. I think gets it so completely wrong. It actually hurts the whole movie, but for the most mm. part, I actually think it's, it's quite good. Uh, and I think they actually do a good job of finding a variety of ways 
to mm. mortify the people that they run into on the street. It's not just about being violent. It's not just about being disgusting. There's one bit where um, Eric Andre thinks he's in love and he does an impromptu musical number and it's about embarrassing people that way. Yeah. Um, there's like a bit he, where he ends up, he he ends up naked because his clothes get yeah. sucked into a vacuum cleaner. Yeah, he, That's a different kind of embarrassment. Yeah, he, he does a, a it's in a, in a mall and he, there's actually a few dancers and he's declaring his love and there's just like panning around on the faces of the people who are watching, just people in the public and they're yeah. like, what the fuck is going on? I, I think my favorite one is actually such a little one. Mm. It's uh, where Tiffany Haddish, there's like a prison bus driving by <laughs> oh, no, and she's like, she's like underneath the prison bus mm. and she like, the prison bus stops and she like rolls out and like, and right next to some like regular dude and just says hey i'm breaking out of prison can you help me out <laughs> this poor guy is like like uh, put in this like really awkward situation and she like and he kind of helps her out a little bit and then she but runs then, away and then like a cop shows up it's like hey have you seen someone run by here she just escaped from prison the guy's like uh no, no. And yes, so the guy go, cop go runs away the tiffany haddish runs back and he's like <laughs> what are you doing back here that bit's genius. That's a that, genius that, yeah. bit of comedy. Well, what I appreciate about this movie, though, um, compared to something like Bad Grandpa, or is Which it I didn't dir- see or was it Dirty Grandpa? No, Bad Grandpa was the one with Johnny Knoxville. Yeah, Dirty Academy Gr- Award nominee, Bad Grandpa, and for makeup. That's right, and yeah. uh, and Dirty Grandpa was the one with De Niro. Um, yes, I think that's true. Yes. In Bad Grandpa, they do. Uh, it's Johnny Knoxville dressed up as an old man in old man makeup, and a, his young grandchild. Doing things like crashing weddings and knocking over the wedding cake and getting everybody really mad at their antics. Yeah. How can uh, we get them mad? How, how can we piss people off and outrage people? Yeah. Uh, this film is a little bit more interested in humiliating the main characters. Yeah. They are the ones who are put into peril. Yeah. They are the ones who are doing the embarrassing things. Yeah, uh, they, it's, there's it's, not a, about, it's not about hurting the people. Like, Borat yeah. is about, like, making Humiliating people, the, the ordinary yeah, people. it's about yeah. making ordinary people reveal their prejudices, mm. or at the very least, how willing they are to go along with people who are prejudiced or awful yeah, or yeah. sexist just to go about it, and that's so how this gets propagated in society yeah, by people just deciding not to say anything. So it's it's a prank on those people. Yeah. Uh, I feel like this film is more a prank on the performers themselves, yeah. and indeed, when people, uh, when Eric Andre uh, does something really, like he gets really fake drunk in a bar, and they put like a tube up next to his hand so he can fake vomit all over the floor, people, all the people around him rush to help. Yeah. There's there's actually this wonderful display of common human decency in this movie that I found really pleasant to witness. There's there's a montage in this film and it's clearly based on clips where they whole sequences where they probably shot a whole bunch of stuff but mm. it was bogging the movie down so we only saw like 30 seconds of a whole big setup. Yeah. And there was this one bit with like Lil Rel where he got like trapped in a porta potty but like halfway down yeah, like, yeah so just the top half of them and he's like hey can you help me and i would be like that's disgusting i'm gonna get someone to help you because i have like a bad knee or whatever and someone they just like grab them put their hands in all the poop because they're yeah. immediately helping a human being and i'm feeling like a piece of shit because <laughs> i'm like hey that's oh i have no mm. upper body strength i should mm. find help and i'm like no i should have just dropped everything and tried to help and i'm the jerk the the this is good on one level, which mm. is that it takes a very straightforward and frankly kind of vapid comedy mm. and just adds this one little metal meta level where you never know quite where the humiliation is going to come from. And you never quite know exactly how people are going to react. And mm. sometimes that's really, really funny. However, 
some gags are better than others and there's yeah, one no. gag right in the middle and i mean like literally i got that 45 minute mark practically uh-huh. that was so tonally off i got furious and i turned off the movie and it's this bit where they go to a zoo mm. oh yeah and eric andre decides he's gonna nice, take a he's gonna disgusting take, scene yeah. it's a really really repellent scene where he decides he's gonna take a picture with a gorilla by like going mm. into the pen and and and, and i without going to a lot of detail there is a vivid prolonged and repeated sexual attack on eric andre now obviously it's fake mm-hmm. but the people who are there wouldn't know that so in addition to just mm-hmm. this is a very light-hearted show a uh, uh, movie all of a sudden Engaging in something that to a lot of people at home will be very, like, actually really creepy and disturbing and make you want to turn it off. But on top of it all, I'm thinking on the extra level here where there are people who they're exposing to a sexual attack Mm. and they don't they, they didn't sign up for that. And we see in like the credits that people seem mostly cool with it, but that's a gamble and they could actually be like really hurting people like making people like feel really really terrible and frightened mm. especially when like well, they're, they're, the gorilla like actually to, starts charging them you yeah, know they're, like they're trying to to scare them and yeah but there's there are different they're levels of scare though i think right. we can all agree on yeah. that there's scare it's like oh you jumped out at me with like a party favor yeah. and then there's scare i thought i was going to be attacked mm. i think that's a different thing and i think the idea that the people in the audience don't always know when they're safe Mm. is something that really made me less... I found it less funny. And on top of it all, I think it's just in very poor taste. I feel like the movie had... Well, it's definitely in poor taste. Well, but but there's... In poor taste even for the film. I feel like the film set up a contract with me Mm. saying this is going to be very light and silly. Mm. And then here's sexual violence for a while. Mm. And it wasn't funny anymore. And I actually had to turn it off for a while and come back to it. Okay. And I watched the rest of it. There's some good stuff towards the end, but it hurt the film. I, I and the the thing is, you don't need that scene. <laughs> that scene doesn't add anything. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's hmm. not a plot point that's important later or anything. It's just vile in a way that the rest of the movie isn't, and it really brings an otherwise endearing, funny movie down. I don't know. As somebody who survived through the gross-out comedies of the late 90s and early 2000s, mm. didn't seem any further afield than any of those. Well, I, and, I'm going to say this, this was tastes the, evolve, don't they? I, I suppose so, and trends co- come and go and rise yeah. and fall, and... Uh, I don't think any of the people that we saw in the film, uh, you know, we, I don't know how they felt in the yeah. moment. They were certainly frightened, which was the goal. Right. And, and they, and luckily there is footage over the credits of them revealing the prank to the people who were being pranked. And they all, yeah, they all kind of laughed it off and they all thought it was very, very silly. And I didn't know that mm. until the credits, did I? So I'm yeah. in there the so, whole movie so thinking a, about so those poor a people. Pay, so there's a payoff, so isn't thinking, there? Oh, so half so the movie, the, I'm thinking yeah. about those poor people. Mm. That's not helping the movie, is and, it? And, you know, they didn't. I, we knew they weren't in danger because you know, the filmmakers wouldn't have put them it, in danger because that's not a real okay. Part of the part of the idea mm. of this kind of comedy is you're putting yourself in the shoes mm. of the people who were there yeah. because they don't know that it's fake, mm. and seeing their genuine reaction to it is supposed to be where the entertainment comes from. But the genuine reaction to this kind of a violent attack mm. might not be funny. It might actually just be harrowing, and. 
are even if the people involved are seem kind of cool with it or whatever and they probably some of them might even guess that it was fake but like because it's very broad i'll give you that but at the same time i i don't know that it's editing they can choose to edit out the stuff where people actually are genuinely concerned Mm. so i feel like the movie became unsafe i feel like the movie all of a sudden for this for this bit Mm. felt like actually we don't know where the line is and we could cross it at any time and that made the genuinely hilarious bits a little bit less comfortable for me because i didn't know how cool they were going to be well, and, and, but that's the thrill of the whole movie, isn't it? About no, not knowing where that line is, how people are going to react. That's what you're, that's the risk you take when you're filming these things in public. You don't know how people are going to react. Yeah, but I and think, indeed, uh, it, it's established. You don't, it's, in, you don't think it's important to have that line? You don't think of, it's Of course it's important to have the line, yeah. but this kind of comedy depends on kind of finding where that line is and trying to get as close to it as possible. And I think they overshot it and, this time. And this and, one uh, sequence, uh-huh. I think they overshot it so bad that it mm. hurt the movie for me. But nobody was in actual danger, so... And yet I, yeah. and yet I was uh, disturbed. Okay. So I have, to resp- I have to react to that. I have to explain that. Oh, I was more disturbed by the scene near the end where Tiffany Haddish drives her car through a wall. Oh my god, yeah, there's this the, poor woman <laughs> had no idea. And all of a sudden... It's like, they, they, they had to make... Yeah, I was about that. to say, they made sure everybody was standing... I hope they made sure everybody yeah. was standing on the right side of the room, because that's the kind of stunt that could yeah. go terribly wrong. There's one gag that Tiffany Haddish has, mm. in this, and, and, and it's hard for the movie... Listen, I'm, I'm just saying, it's hard for the movie to come back for that for me, because I think it's so mishandled. Mm. But there's so many good bits, and I do have to give them credit for them, because I think you lift that one scene I don't like out of this and you've got a really good comedy here mm-hmm. um, is this one amazing bit where Tiffany Haddish is she, she's they're constantly cutting back to Tiffany Haddish as he's trying to find her brother and Eric Andre and their and the car that they stole uh-huh. um, and there's this amazing bit where she's running up to some random guy saying hey have you seen my brother and his best friend the guy's like no I know you know them mm-hmm. it's like don't then why are you in this picture with them and she sends him a photograph and his face is in it and she did that's some funny shit if that happened to me on the street i'd be like the fuck where where did you get that this is on facebook (laughs) that's a funny fucking gag i I gotta give him that 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 gag killed me there's some good good gags here and and one of my favorite bits was and the the movie's plot actually hinged on a prank and I'm sure they had other plans just in case uh, this yeah. the one doorman didn't uh, didn't help them out. Right. But Eric Andre said, like he goes up to the where the uh, the art gallery is, where he's going to find his his beloved, and uh, he has to plea with the doorman, saying, "You gotta let me in. You have to let me in because you know this is the woman that I'm in love with." It's like no, I can't just let people in. That's I'm a doorman. I have to stop yeah. you. And he just sort of pleads and pleads and keeps saying things like, "Haven't you ever been in love?" He's giving these big over the top yeah. comic performance. And the doorman just like, okay, fine, and just lets him in. <laughs> and you can tell, like, Eric Andre is like a little surprised. Yeah, like, oh, like I, had oh. a, I had a longer bit. Oh, thanks. Okay, great. <laughs> Guess that we don't have to. Funny. We don't have to write that scene where we sneak in the back. <laughs> that 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 was yeah. pretty funny. I'll give you that one. Um, so so you're you're saying that it's about you know it, it was a little tonally off, but all, all I, think I saw one in this scene that was off in, in this movie where uh, people are shown being actually very, very kind and helpful yeah. for the most part, being very moved by a lot of these public displays of affection between the two friends. Uh, I think there's a lot of warmth in this film, which is why, which is why for one scene where they yeah. did something that I think for a lot of people yeah. would be genuinely upsetting, yeah. frightening, triggering, perhaps. 
I feel like that hurt my feelings because like I like the people that you've shown us in this movie hmm. and I feel like in this particular instance they don't feel safe. They're, that's the part for me. Okay. That's that's the thing that I think hurt me is that I felt a little betrayed. Okay. Um so and it's a shame because so much of the rest of the movie's fun. All like right. it's genuinely funny. Um so yeah, I I'm really really mixed on it. Um and I honestly don't even know how I'm going to rate it yet, even though that's exactly what we've got to do. It is time <laughs> to review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, here's how that scale works. In case you're new, need a reminder. Uh, we review movies on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus. The lowest you can get is a C-. minus. That is below average. Everything from we just don't recommend it to the worst movie ever. Most movies are a C. C is average. There's some good. There's some bad. It all kind of averages out to it's fine. Hmm. And then there's above average, that gets you a C plus, that's everything from we just genuinely recommend this movie to the best movie ever made. Whitney Seibold, <laughs> where do you put Bad Trip? Uh, bad Trip, I give a C. Uh, it's okay. it's not earth shattering, it's not a great comedy uh, in terms of like its structure mm-hmm. or the actual written bits. Uh, there's a bit where they take drugs and go into a, a grocery store that I was completely extraneous. Yeah, um, that but but yeah, I think I think the pranks were fun, and I think uh, they're having a good time with it, and I think they're revealing a lot about. I appreciate that it's not about humiliating the public. It's about sort of humiliating themselves and seeing how the public would relate to that. And that's, that's a a little bit novel compared to the way these comedies tend to run. I, uh, um, before I give my rating, I want to mention real fast this, there's an amazing piece of IMDb trivia for bad trip. (laughs) And the trivia is thus same music composer, Ludwig Goransson of Tenet. A film with a $200 million budget. <laughs> it says that in the trivia? That's the trivia. That's incredibly trivial. That's just the guy made other movies. <laughs> it's a weird trivia bit. Look at any of Morricone. He did classics. Yeah. He did trash. Yeah, he people, did just people, do anything. Pe- people need to work, man. I don't know what, I don't know why that's weird. Anyway, uh, but I digress. Uh, this one, I'm really, really torn on it because I think a lot of it's funny, but I think I have to because I just had this like really viscerally negative reaction to it. Mm. I think I have to give it a high C minus, but it is a very qualified okay. high C minus. I just, I feel like there's a part of this movie that I'm just uncomfortable recommending, but there's a lot of really good stuff in here. And if after hearing us talk about it, it does sound like something you'll find funny mm. or you'll at least be able to get buy and like not have it ruin the movie for you yeah. then i whitney's assessment is probably correct but i feel mm-hmm. like i need to represent the other end no, of that no, no it's fair and i, I can't yeah. i can't make you find that funny that's yeah. uh, that again it's, it's all it's, it's all it's taste and it's our responsibility to explain why we have our taste yeah and how mm-hmm. the movie hit us in the mm-hmm. way that affected our taste positively or negatively that's all criticism that's uh okay but uh, on the other end of that uh-huh. uh violation uh, violation. It's it's a hard. I can't say like I recommend this because it's actually re- really really difficult and it's actually not terribly sophisticated. It's just about uh, emotional immediacy. But I thought that was incredibly effective. So I'm going to give it a C plus. Okay. Uh, what, what do you have next? It was um, oh uh, the mole agent. The, the mole agent is also a C plus. It's nice. it's uh, it's short. It's very gentle and it's very uh, very calming and very sweet and is actually not about what you think it's going to be about. I, and that, I, and I appreciate that. That makes me so much more excited yeah. to see it. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm at a we all we all go through moods where mm-hmm. like there's certain types of movies we're interested in. Mm-hmm. Right now, I can only take so much harrowing. It's been such a rough <laughs> year or two, man. Yeah, I, just, I, I don't want to watch a film, and I want to feel comforted. I, I don't need to feel comforted. 
started. I just don't want to be put through the ringer unnecessarily. Okay. That's all I want. That, that, uh, those are the things that make me feel alive. Bracing. Shake me out of my complacency. I don't need to feel that alive. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, uh, was the other? The Father. And The Father, also C+. Quite, right. quite a good film. Uh, very, very, very good performances. Really well constructed. Really well filmed. I liked it. It's a very good week for movies, mm-hmm. that is. And it's just about to get better because we're about to talk about the critically acclaimed streaming club. Once again, our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network can pick a film every single week that is available on one streaming service. Uh, Whitney and I each pick two films uh, that we haven't seen or maybe we haven't seen since we were very young and don't remember. We functionally haven't seen mm-hmm. it. Um and, uh, yeah, we invite you to pick one. And then we're going to highlight that every single week. And uh, this week, the options were all 1930s movies on the Criterion channel. Why 1930s? Why not? Uh, we, we, we like the 1930s. It's an interesting time for cinema. Sound design was coming into its own. Uh, actually, uh, the way movies were photographed had to evolve very rapidly to accommodate that sound design because it didn't used to be an issue and the camera could be a lot more flexible and fluid and now filmmakers mm. kind of had to relearn the language of cinema all over again. Um, and that's really, really interesting. The, the it, studios were in a lot of flux as they started to adapt to the production code, which changed what would they were allowed to show on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, great golden age for incredible movie stars. Um, there's a lot going on in the 1930s. And uh, y- y'all picked a really interesting film. <laughs> y'all picked Vampire, directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, who had previously... Vom- uh, vom- vampire. Vampire, yeah. sorry. Uh, I was translating it, but yeah. Uh, and uh, Dreyer is perhaps best known for directing The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is considered not just one of the greatest silent movies ever made, but one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, it's, it's regularly regularly tops critical lists, and you know, it's one that you'll be assigned in film school. And I have no argument against it. It's amazing. It is an amazing film. It's, it's yeah. a silent film about the passion of Joan of Arc. It's yeah. about her trial and her execution. Uh, it stars Maria Falconetti in her best performance. Uh, <laughs> she was only in one movie. She was only in the one movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, how she faces off against these sort of demonic-looking church figures who are determined to execute her and put her on trial for her sins. And uh, how she maintains her her clarity of thought throughout this. And yeah. uh, it is just one of the classics of cinema. Uh Vampire or Vampire is uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer's follow-up to The Passion of Joan of Arc. He actually was pretty prolific, but this is the first movie he had made in four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a weird film. It was a weird film mm-hmm. at the time. It was not very well critically appraised at the time. In fact, for many, many years, this was considered like lesser Dreyer. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, aside from The Passion of Joan of Arc, it's the film he's best known for. Yeah, and uh, thanks to the Criterion Collection and and a lot of uh, hardworking archivists, this film was reassembled uh, after being sort of scattered and, and wrecked for a long time. Yeah, it's a sound uh, film that uses a lot of silent film sort of storytelling tropes including intertitles including a lot of intertitles like mm. heavy intertitles intertitles are those screens of dialogue or mm. exposition that would be just between different scenes in a movie silent films tried not to rely on them too much usually but they were often necessary to make a transition from one scene to another to clarify plot elements mm. um 
And uh, yeah, this movie uses them very, very heavily, but it is also a sound film. But the sound elements were just scattered to the winds. There were incomplete soundtracks, and the movie that we have now actually had to be recreated a lot. There was an English language version of this that is apparently yeah. lost. The, uh, the, language, in, the English track is gone. From uh, from what I understand, uh, Dreyer was actually like given a studio mandate to shoot it in multiple languages. Yeah. And that would have that was really hard. That was actually really hard on production. So they made a conscious creative decision to have less dialogue. Yeah. There's uh, as, very little. And there, there's very little in the way of actual dialogue. And when it happens, it's really shocking. Yeah. And Dreyer films it in such a way. There's a scene early in the film where uh, the main character, his name is uh, oh, uh, Tom Alan Gray. Alan Gray, played by Julian West. Yeah, Al- Alan Gray uh, is checked into this uh, this remote inn, and it's it's so remote it doesn't feel like it's close to anything. Like not even a no. road. It's just in the middle of the woods. It's, it's just limbo. That's what and it's and, uh, and it's also explained that Alan Gray is a dreamer, and he is given to flights of fancy. So we're not really sure how much of this is. Like real, like actual reality per se, and how much of this is something that he's sort of projecting yeah, and it's an overactive imagination, yeah. or maybe a mental health issue. Uh, yeah. But there, an old man in the inn enters his room, and I don't know what he did to the wallpaper in this room, where it, it's this weird sort of pattern, but it all looks like it's swirling in a certain direction, but you look straight at it, and it's not moving. Yeah. And this old man kind of walks in, he's looking down at his feet, and then at the last minute, he looks up right at the camera and just says his line of dialogue. And he's not even saying or doing anything scary, but it's the scariest fucking thing. The mood that that Wampir like mm. develops over just a few short moments. Mm. The beginning of this movie is this guy Alan Gray. That's all we know is that he's he's uh, he's a bit depressive, he's moody, mm. and he's prone to flights of fancy. And he's wandering around in the middle of nowhere. He's in the woods, goes to this inn, and he gets a room there. Mm. That's it. That's all that happens in the first couple of minutes of this movie. And it's fucking terrifying. (laughs) Every single camera angle is exquisitely chosen. The thing that Dreyer does really well, and I can't honestly think of another filmmaker who does this as well. A lot of filmmakers Mm. are very good at using shadow to tell a story. Yeah. Uh, we see this a lot in, uh, you know, German expressionism. We see this. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola was notoriously very, very good at this in the Godfather movies. A lot of films are about like really inky shadows, and they're really just hmm. gorgeously contrasty. Dreyer makes things glow, <laughs> and there, there are no shadows in Dreyer films. And, like there are, but it's more about the. Co- it's not so much the shadows; it's the brightness that contrasts with them. That's where the terror comes mm. from. Like you'll just see like the inside of the inn. We're inside the inn. The camera's right here, and you can see out in the background a window outside, and the window outside is so blown out because it's so bright mm. that when a figure appears in it, it's shocking. Because you thought that was a white background, and now you realize that that's actually, like, that substance. Yeah. When there's something, like, silhouetted in the foreground, what's creepy isn't that there's this, like, dark figure in the foreground. What's creepy is, what is glowing behind it? It makes no (laughs) sense. It makes no sense at all. I don't even know how they lit some of these scenes, obviously. I don't know, uh, man. Uh, there, and there's a lot and of, And a like, lot of it was shot on location. Like, you could say, like, mm-hmm. oh, well, they probably built it like that. They didn't. They, yeah, filmed, they filmed this on location. They filmed it on location. I know there was a lot of, like, uh, photographic tricks, which, you know, we just don't use anymore. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, there's a scene where 
uh, Alan Gray kind of astrally projects himself. So we see this kind of ghostly image passing. Yeah. That's just a double exposure. That's not yeah. hard to do. And it's, yeah. well, it's, co- you know, it's hard to do right. It's but to, it, the you know, principle is simple. Yeah. yeah and it, it's something that's that was done, you know, ad infinitum since then. Yeah. But how the the lighting and the image stayed as static as it did while they're doing this double exposure seems like almost impossible. Yeah. It's really, really uncanny. Like the movie, if you've, if you're a fan, I I compared this at the beginning of the podcast to an A24 horror movie. And Mm. I feel like A24, A24 doesn't really make their movies. They mostly distribute them, but they do clearly have a sense of taste. There's definitely a type of horror movie that they're super interested in. They're interested in movies that are super atmospheric, that connect on some sort of deep emotional level, and that are shocking, but aren't trying to entertain you with it. They're trying to disturb you with their darkness. Mm. And that feels like Wampir all over. Um, If you were a fan of something like uh, The Lighthouse... <laughs> you should totally yeah, yeah, see yeah. Wampir. It's it's way more it's way quieter, hmm. but it's definitely of a piece. Um so the plot of the movie is this guy goes to this inn and a mysterious man walks in and he tells them that you have to save this girl and he leaves him a package and he writes a note on it that says open this after I die and then he vanishes. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this is just straight up dream logic territory. Yeah. Like there, there's not an actual story here, like a logical progression. There's, yeah. we know somebody is sick at the inn, and he is immediately enlisted to give her a blood transfusion. Well, because, not immediately actually well, takes a bit, but like he wanders through the woods. He actually wanders into another house, which is terrifying. Oh, that's right. That happens before the, the yeah. blood transfusion. Like he, right? he walks into this other house and the house doesn't seem to follow any rules. And, and shadows he, seem to operate on their own and laugh at him. Yeah. And yeah. it's really super creepy. And then he ends up at this mansion and the mansion is where this sick girl is. And we find out pretty quickly that she has been bitten by a vampire. Mm. And the guy who told the, the, him you have to save... Before vampires were really common. And, yeah. like, and this was 1931. When when was Dracula? It was like 1890 Dracula, Dracula came out? Or? Yeah, the popular modern version mm. of vampires as codified by Dracula, which there's a lot of different versions of the vampire myth mm. throughout history, throughout cultures. Dracula solidified them. This is like 30 years later. This is like... 97, uh, excuse me. Yeah, it's like 35 years later. This Mm -hmm. vampire is... uh, Wampir is uh, 1932. The Dracula movie everyone knows is 1931. Mm -hmm. So this is like watching like... Okay, you know how like zombies as we now know them as a genre were invented in the late 1960s and George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead? This is like watching like 28 days later Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. Like it's ba- it's the same amount of time after the monster had been practically invented as we know it. Mm. So, yeah, this is really fresh and new and exciting. And, and indeed, Dreyer apparently was cool with that. It mm. was a hip monster to make a movie about. He was interested in sort of connecting with audiences and hitting a zeitgeist. Um, he had weird fucking way to do it but he did, <laughs> did have an interesting he did he did have know that there was money to be made here. Um Anyway, this woman has been bitten by a vampire and the guy who told him you have to save this girl is immediately murdered by a mysterious figure (laughs) and the guy rushes into the house and the guy is dead so he opens the book. The book is a book about vampires. The vampire story in the book is a little hazier in the details of the mythology but it's basically a vampire myth. They talk a lot more about the guilt of it, about how a vampire is a soul that was so evil in life it cannot rest in 
death and it ends up corrupting others around yeah. them and, well, and trying to convince them to kill themselves because that in the Catholic terms is an unforgivable sin. Uh, and so the only way hmm. to save and or stop a vampire is to kill them, yeah. thus the, ending their plight. This kind of demonic infection of a vampire's evil is something that I think has been lost in a lot of modern vampire lore. We I mean, we, we, well, we understand what vampires are, so we just get to the nitty gritty right away. So we have like people filling squirt guns with holy water we're, we're, and we're blasting the, them. Yeah, which is the mechanics uh, or the biology. Oh, it's yeah. the biological thing. It's like a blood disease yeah, or whatever. And I'm like. Originally, this is about evil, yeah, which like, is a more nebulous philosophical concept. Yeah, like the a- actual e- evil as an entity unto itself is the thing that's that's spreading. Yeah, it's not the virus. It's not the. It's actually something that's unholy. In fact, um, if you watch uh, Murnau's Nosferatu, yeah, uh, the vampires vanquished at the end of that movie. Big surprise! It's, it's a, it's a movie. Nine, yeah. It's from nineteen twenty-two. You should know the end of this movie. Yeah, um, but. Uh, the uh, the young woman, the young ingenue of that movie, uh, Greta Schroeder. This is Greta Schroeder. Uh, that's, from she, that's from Shadow of the Vampire. Uh, she kind of lures the vampire to her bedroom where he just sort of stays with her because he enjoys her warmth and her life and her company. And it was her ability to make the vampire witness something as pure and as grand as a sunrise that destroyed him. Yeah, it's conceptual, it was, it was not the, literal. It was, it was the purity and the goodness yeah. of the moment that destroyed the vampire. And they, they're actually not explicit. ultraviolet yeah, rays. It wasn't the, the sun beams itself. So I see yeah. these movies about vampires sticking their hands into the sun and smoke comes off their skin. It's like, mm, I feel not, like sometimes not the concept they were going for. We like to geek out over monsters. Like yeah. we, the way people geek out over superheroes now mm-hmm. or Star Wars or Star Trek Monsters were doing that a long time ago, and it's because they had mythology, they had lore, they had things that don't always track between different versions of a myth. And people like talking about them and figuring mm. out, you know, well, how do you kill a, a werewolf? Like, you know, could like there's a whole conversation in Monster Squad. Like, surely if you blew it up with dynamite, that would work, right? Mm. It can't, can't just be silver. And yeah. so there's <laughs> like all of these conversations, all these geeky conversations are things that we're having. And I feel like that all of that is fun and it shows a genuine interest in the characters. But oftentimes that's just minutia and we're getting really far away from what is fundamentally frightening about these things. Why mm. do these stories persist it's not just because drinking blood is edgy <laughs> or vampires aren't edge lords yeah. they're they're demons they yeah. are are beings of guilt pain suffering darkness and disease yeah and and don't get me wrong there's a ton of great vampire stories that aren't about that no and it, but you know i i enjoy a big stupid vampire fight movie yeah. as, as much as blade, anybody blade kicks ass like it's not it's blade not about any really of that fun. shit but uh, it's, it's awesome i i openly admit that it's a piece of shit but i'm fond of bordello of blood it is a piece of uh, shit I, I watched it recently it's like that they put that in theaters this is embarrassing yeah. it's, it's like straight to video level <laughs> it's, quality it's, it's, it's like really re- bad it's like super cheap it's not well Major written mistake anyway but uh, but i feel like every once in a while it's important to remind ourselves what is at the root of this what fundamentally makes this work? We need to revisit. This is one of the reasons why I think uh, the new version of The Invisible Man was was such a hit. Mm. Was because a because it's really well made, but b because it understands that what is frightening about 
an invisible person. Mm. And that is you never know if you're alone and no one believes you <laughs> about them. It's that and, it's and that if, sense of paranoia. All, yeah, if you were afraid of that person before and yeah. they, they were manipulating you before, then yeah. yeah, it gets deeper under your skin. Yeah, it's a really excellent movie. And and Wampir, I think, is actually one of the even though it's not really like super about the vampire specifically, mm. it's actually one of the best vampire movies just because it's about that inner darkness within the vampire lore mm. and about how evil, there might be some rules that are laid out in this book. Mm. Evil doesn't really follow them very much. No. And you know, it's, it's like, you, it's you, about. and, and the, the idea of, Oh, Oh, I know how to kill a vampire. You drive a stake through its heart. Well, that's weird, right? There yeah. was, can you, how, how do you figure that out? Who was <laughs> like, the first person? Who, yeah, who was the first person who was well, running into enough vampires that they could experiment? Well, it's my understanding, and this hmm. this also might have been boulderized over the years, hmm. but it's my understanding that originally driving a stake through a vampire's heart wasn't the thing that killed it. Hmm. Driving a stake through a vampire's heart kept it from attacking you while you cut its head off, and that killed it. Well, and and they explain in actual exposition in this movie from one of those long intertitles that uh, you drive an iron stake into a vampire essentially drilling it to the ground so it and ensuring that its anymore. soul can't get up anymore. Yeah. Like it, that's effectively killing it. Yeah. It's not like immobilizing rend- yeah, it permanently. Rending, yeah. yeah. Immobilizing it permanently. It's not like rending its heart asunder is the thing that's going on. Uh, yeah. yeah. This is about fear and the nightmare of that fear. It's about ghostly vengeance. Mm-hmm. It's about using these weird dreamlike supernatural means to not necessarily overcome evil, but at the very least, uh, tap into your own evil and wreak vengeance. I feel like, and the, there, yeah, there's a an and an act of vengeance that's like it's completely illogical the way somebody dies near the end of this movie, uh, where yeah. it, it seems like that shouldn't happen that way. Like there's a way to escape this, or there's not a way that this actual death should occur, but it does, and that makes it all the more terrifying. Yeah, it's like the death you might witness in a dream. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's mm. this incredible sequence in the movie where uh, the protagonist mm. um, envisions himself failing to save the day. And yeah, the vampire yeah. and the vampire's minions uh, have killed him, or at the very least immobilized him permanently. And they're, they've put him in a coffin, and then they put a lid on that coffin, and the coffin has a little window in it. So you can, so you can see, see the, the person fa- in it, the, the which is actually very face. common, yeah. because off, coffins were often used to like stand people up for display, mm. you know, to sort of uh, be, one, be one with the dead, rather than just shove them away as quickly as we can. Um, but the idea is, Dreyer shows us a person being dragged away to their funeral from their POV. <laughs> so you're in it's the like, coffin just yeah. looking upward. It's really freaky. And and he sees like he sees that, but he also sees it because he's projecting it. Like he yeah. kind of his ghostly form is also watching it. He's seeing it from both perspectives simultaneously. Yeah, because it's a dream. So he's seeing it from yeah. inside and also witnessing it happening. So it's like he gets both bad ends of that. I feel like there's for me the thing that sort of makes this movie kind of feel like I I, I don't know if Dreyer would have read anything by H.P. Lovecraft by this point. I know he'd been mm. writing, but I don't know if it had made its way over to Europe or not, or if he was oh, interested in not. Lovecraft wasn't writing. Yeah, he well, was. I guess by the thirties. Thirty-two. Yeah, 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 he'd written yeah, he some stuff. And I'm, so I'm not. I'm not so going to give. I'm not going to say this timeline with. I'm not, gonna, Dracula, I'm not so. going to assume that there's any connection here whatsoever. But there is a parallel, I think, between Lovecraft's tendency to write protagonists who are very impressionable. Mm. 
uh, and whose perspective couldn't necessarily be trusted and what Dreyer is doing in one pier because the idea that our protagonist is this like young and he's very pale wide eyed. He looks like a picture of Lovecraft. Actually, if you look at him, like he doesn't mm-hmm. look like the dude, um, he's wandering around like the backwoods, the small towns and just getting up in people's business. Mm-hmm. And everything we see seems to reflect a depressive state, mm-hmm. an existential dilemma about life and death or uh, fears about uh, disease or religion or femininity even. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it's that kind of dreamy loner, it's almost supernatural catcher on the rye thing. Where we're just kind of following this guy as he just follows his every whim and just sinks deeper and deeper mm-hmm. into his own interpretations of things as horrible as they are. Um, that kind of nothing really grounds this movie, but I feel like that's as close <laughs> as we can get. Mm. I, I, I think because he's a dreamer, we're uh, I don't think he's necessarily punishing himself, but yeah. He is trapped in a prison of his own making. Yeah. And it's not like some sort of uh, karma is happening. No. Like he's being punished for thinking this way. But, no. Uh, I think he's punishing himself, yeah. though. I think yeah, he's, yeah. he's he's a young, mm-hmm. you know, goth kid, basically, who is well, really think, thinking uh, about all of these really dark things mm-hmm. and seeing them come to light and maybe realizing that it's actually not as fun as any of that. Mm-hmm. This isn't uh, and, a vacation anymore. But that's not just a goth kid thing. I think that's no, that's incredibly uh, and universally human. Uh, I, yeah. I remember reading Freud at one point, and he referred to something called the death drive. Oh, that, yeah. that was just sort of a, an instinct that all humans have within themselves toward self-slutter, where they're just interested in annihilation in one degree or in, to one degree or another. The movie Annihilation uh, brings this up directly. The, the, it's called Annihilation, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah that, that's <laughs> what that movie is about. Yeah. Uh, the, this, this drive we had toward annihilation and um, how it's really fascinating to us just as a species. This is why we tell ghost stories. Yeah. So to have a, a story about somebody who is being driven deeper and deeper into the arms of evil, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term, just because he's interested in it yeah. is something that I think is incredibly relatable. I agree. And everybody's had nightmares and everybody's that's had dreams. Was, so there's something kind of what I was getting yeah, at. That's yeah. kind of what I was getting at. I think it's yeah. a good point. I also really like, even though the story is kind of obtuse in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. I actually really like that uh, the way that Dreyer is telling this story, um, there is a plot. He does know when to reveal key information. There's this really great. There's not a lot of dialogue in the movie, but there's one line of dialogue that is super creepy and is perfectly placed. Um, So the the young woman is dying Mm -hmm. and the doctor shows up and our hero recognizes the doctor from that weird house of shadows that he visited. Mm -hmm. But the doctor says, okay, this young woman is dying. Uh, She needs a blood transfusion. And the guy knows about vampirism. And you know what? That tracks... (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah blood transfusion that that would probably help right that makes some sense the movie near dark literalized that like that's a thing so the guy says okay get your veins open let's do this let's give her a blood transfusion the guy's like okay and as he's like sucking the blood out of this guy in this vampire movie the camera pans very slowly over to the victim's sister and she says why does the doctor only come at night <laughs> 
And you're like, oh, <laughs> shit. It's so fucking freaky. Like, ex- mm-hmm. the timing of it's perfect. And the delivery is so otherworldly, but very pointed. It's a plot point. Mm-hmm. It's just plot. But, oh, it's good. It's always awesome. And it's short, too, by the way. It's like 70-something it's, it's, minutes. Yeah, it's it's like a one hour, 18 minutes. It's, 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 it's paced yeah. kind of slow, obviously, because it's just like got that kind of like mm-hmm. dreamlike floaty kind of feeling to it but it is a quick watch and i do think it's worth checking out it's on the criterion channel it's also on hbo max so if you don't have criterion channel it's still readily available and it's probably other places as well i haven't done all the the research but it's on those um and you should totally check it out if you haven't i had seen in film school we watched the clip of the pov of the coffin it was like Mm. a the first class we took in film school was like a sort of general cinema studies just Mm. to make sure everyone understood all the terminology and had a general overview of the history. So we're all on the same page and the, our, I forget my professor's name, but uh, the picture, the, the the shot that we did to explain what a POV was, was Mm. from this movie and in the coffin. So I'd seen that, but I never actually sat through the whole movie. I'm so glad I did. It's freaky as fuck. Yeah. This yeah. is like ideal Halloween fodder. Yeah. Just crack this out every October. Yeah, even if even if you're not listening to it, even if you just put like some creepy music on in the background, but this is great on a TV. <laughs> it's so pretty. Criterion did a really nice job yeah, yeah. cleaning and, um, this up. It looks really good. The actual physical copy came with like Vam- like a book of vampire lore it's one of their bigger boxes like it's just nice. a single it's not like this multiple dvd set and it's yeah. a short movie uh it's and it's not jam-packed with extras but the most notable extra is the book of vampire lore that That's comes cool. with it so, That's yeah. really cool when i was a kid at the I used to we used to go to the library like once every couple of weeks yeah, and yeah. the pasadena public library which is a big library from where i grew up it's actually really big like mm. it's a big fucking library it's huge it's got cavernous it's got cool staircases like it's a great library if you ever get a chance to visit i hope you do but they had a really big kids section Mm. and i was always every time we went i would pick up another book from the kids section of monster mythology and the monster section in this library was surprisingly dense in the kids section. <laughs> and a lot of it had like really ancient lore in it. So like I was like super obsessed with monsters since I was very, very young. And yeah, this is I'm so glad I finally saw this one because it really just I feel like it like fits like this little <laughs> puzzle piece shape that I never quite. Yeah, it's got a, a, another marker in the, the pop culture map where a yeah. lot of things a lot of paths began. Yeah, it's so fucking cool. Anyway, that is critically acclaimed for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week. Oh boy, will we? And mm. uh, we've got we've gotten some uh, movies to review. We've got uh, Kong versus Godzilla, mm. uh, the rematch of the century. They haven't fought mm. since the 1960s. Kong wiped the floor with Godzilla. Literally, Kong kicked Godzilla's ass liter- last time. Literally stomped Godzilla into the ground. Yeah, so I'm curious if uh, mm. Godzilla's got it in him or if mm. Kong's just going to... Is it going to be a rubber match or is Kong mm. just going to solidify his dominance? We'll see. Also, uh, next week is when the uh, Oscar-nominated shorts are going to be yep. released, so we'll talk about those. And uh, yeah. they remade the movie The Unholy. Uh, <laughs> oh, is that, did they? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. 
Yeah. I didn't realize kinda... that was a remake. I said another movie called The Unholy. Maybe it's just another movie called The Unholy. I think it's but... another movie called The Unholy. We'll find out anyway. Uh, so that's coming up next week. Also, uh, next week on the Critical Acclaim Streaming Club, uh, Whitney likes the streaming service Ovid, O-V-I-D, mm. uh, because it is the ultimate art house streaming service. They've got art how you think like <laughs> oh i saw the father oh did you oh, I, well whitney I, I subscribes to ovid I, I know a24 oh do you do you did you watch the lighthouse well you know <laughs> those movies kind of you know that movie that played for like three hours at lacma that's the the los angeles contemporary museum of art you know that museum movie that yeah. was only at the museum yeah these those movies yeah the movies that have barely mm. ever been released mm. um uh, but they got a lot of them, and a lot of mm. international cinema. I'm, I'm kidding, of course. I don't mean to make it gatekeepy, but like, it's just this. Like, it's clearly a film channel for a niche audience that wants to find mm. the international films that other streaming services don't have. Some of which don't even really get released in America, and art house films, uh, mm. uh, a plenty. Uh, that often don't get their due anywhere else. It's a very admirable service. Mm. Uh, and so uh, the poll is live now. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's a bunch of movies on it, including, uh, what do we got here? Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames. Mm. Uh, mm. The the queer drama uh, Parting Glances, which is mm. one of the first movies to directly uh, deal with the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Like, it's in, Stars a very yeah. young Steve Buscemi, that film. Yeah, and then what are your two? Uh, I, I chose uh, Rebels of the Neon God, which is a Tsai Ming, Tsai Ming Lang film. Uh, he's a Taiwanese director who's uh, just notable Taiwanese director. And a film called A Bread Factory, a, a four-hour film about uh, a uh, museum collective. Yeah, so there's one thing we need, it's longer films to watch. Uh, when I see that a film is like 110 minutes, I wince. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's the wrong length. I don't care what story you're telling. It could be longer. And, so, no, well, my, my thought is either either be done in 90 minutes after credits. Yeah. Or give me five hours. There's no, there should be nothing in between. <laughs> 90 minutes or five hours. That's the only acceptable length of movies. I didn't, uh, I, I, we gave a quick explanation of everything but Born in Flames. Uh, Born in Flames is... A fictional movie told in a documentary format uh, that's an Afrofuturist dystopian uh, story about um, civil rights movements that are competing to Mm. try to topple the oppressive government. And uh, I think it co-stars a young Catherine Bigelow. So that's kind of a hell of a thing. Um, So, um, yeah, those are your options. They are on Patreon right now. Patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, is our Patreon. We have a ton of stuff over there, polls to decide, uh, future podcasts, exclusive shows about the 1960s Batman, about Star Trek, about movies that are not on Disney+, Plus but should be, mm. commentary tracks. We just released our feature-length commentary track for the 1986 cult classic Howard the Duck. Mm. Um, we've got previous shows that are still available. We did every single episode of Firefly. We did a show about TV movies. We've got a show about uh, every single Academy Award nominee for Best Picture ever, which is behind. We know it. We're trying to record it this week. We'll get to it. Uh, and more besides. So if you subscribe, you have a ton of stuff mm. available for you over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this podcast or just want to hear us talk about anything at all, uh, you can get us to do so by emailing us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, mm-hmm. uh, which is our podcast 
where we do that. Uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And don't forget, everyone likes and needs soap, and we've got it. M. Lapis Da Silva and I have a soap store on Etsy. It's called Salt Cat Soap. Uh, we've got a lot of cool designs coming up uh, for our big uh, soap drop for Saturday of every month. Uh, we drop new soap designs, but until then, we still have some soaps on sale. So if you just want to get some soap now, head on over to Etsy, look for Salt Cat Soap, or you can follow us at Salt Cat Soap on Instagram and Twitter. So all of that is a thing. Thank you for listening, and never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>